flash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed, deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion, and it's melted by living time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue, talking heads left his best. The saga continues. The Nomi Key Show. Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. It is Wednesday, December 15th. Oh my God, I can't believe 2021 is almost over. I feel like this is good and bad. I don't know. I mean, last year was just a missing year. Like sometimes I talk to people like, oh, I haven't seen you in like six months, no, three years because time doesn't exist anymore. I'm sure you all feel the same way. Uh, I am here. In Florida, (laughs) uh, I had to come down here for a couple of days, and, you know, there is something to be said about this little liberal bubble we live in, or I live in at least, in um, Astoria, New York, which is arguably one of the most progressive places in the country. Uh, And when you sometimes get out, and, and granted, there is a lot of conservatism in Astoria, too. There's very little in between. But when I come to Florida... There's a certain flavor of conservatism that always alarms me. Uh, Last time I flew to Florida, there was a guy on my flight that said, with a shirt on that said, Proud Boys, and a MAGA hat. This time when I flew down, there was a guy who had a Steven Crowder, Louder with Crowder shirt, sweatshirt on, and a Red USA hat. It's, you know, it's it's a subtler, subtler take on on where they stand. But I, I made a joke online, and I said, there's a certain type of person who decides to wear this when they go to the airport. Last time I got off of a flight uh, to to land in Florida, it was I had a layover. It's always Florida, but this is important because as Florida goes, uh, famously, so goes the country and history, and here we are today. But last time um, I landed in Florida for a layover, this is maybe I, I don't know. This is this is definitely in the Trump years. There was a guy I know it was in the Biden. It was I think it was during the campaign. Uh, there was a guy with a shirt on that said you know, F Biden. And it was before they had the, let's go, you know what, I don't want to be flagged because that's obviously Odin or many other things. Just sitting in the airport, I got off flight. I'm like, well, that was a welcome that I've never seen before. I say this in jest, but it's actually very serious because why I say this is these are the people who are the most vocal. We all know folks who quietly voted for Trump because they maybe secretly kind of like what he has to say or some things he has to say. We know folks who voted for Trump because of the tax breaks. We know folks who say, you know, I'm not Trumpian, but I am more concerned. I'm libertarian. Or I watch Joe Rogan, but I'm not a fan of Trump, but I like what Joe Rogan has to say. And look at, he's been progressive on all these other issues. Or, you know, Elon Musk has got really fascinating takes. He's a brilliant man. Or the guy that I ran into a week ago that said, Jordan Peterson is one of the smartest people on the planet. And also, I hate Trump. So these are flavors of conservatism, and I'm not going to shut up about this because these are moments in history in which you cannot shut up, and I will not shut up about this. There is a, there's always been a strategy. I am here as the person who comes from a political background who has a media show. Some people talk about politics, but, you know, want to be in media. I am here to do whatever I can with whatever little audience I have or big audience, it doesn't matter, to help you understand how these things work. Political science is a science. A big part of political science is building coalitions. Everybody wants to grow, not deplete. That's why infighting is really bad. That's why taking on your allies is really bad. You want to work with those things behind the scenes, but 
and have find a common ground. But at the end of the day, it's about coalition building for a broader goal. And right now, my broader goal is end this spread of fascism because it is out of control. I don't know if the Biden administration has a sense of what's happening. I know that they do intellectually. I know that they had a democracy summit because they were worried about the spread of fascism abroad. And those little losses that Bannon had over the past couple of years were really nothing. We're really nothing because the ideas are planted. You don't even really need Donald Trump anymore. You don't need Bill O'Reilly. They had that big rally in Orlando this week and this, the stadium didn't fill up. You don't need them. The ideas are planted. People can now say, I'm not a Trump person, but I'm a Jordan Peterson person. Guess what? It's the same idea. It's just a little different flavor. So depending on your personality, if you're really into, you know, uh, drinking supplements and macho culture, Joe Rogan might be your entrance point if you're on the left. And then the more you listen to him, the more you listen to him, you have no idea how you may have been affected by some of the ideas that he believes. And then, you know, he brings on another person, whether it's an Alex Jones. They're preying on folks and their interests. The reason why the right wing is doing this is because demographically, they have been losing this game. 15 years ago, the Bushes, the Bushes invested in a plan because they were worried about losing demographics. They wanted to focus on Latinos, Hispanics in the South, whether it's the Southwest or Texas or Florida. And they lost that fight because you got this other crew who's more interested in preying on young white men. Not a new idea. This is always the path to radicalization. So you find your flavor of young white man, you touch a nerve with him, and you bring him in. You bring them into your coalition, whether they're conscious of it or not, whether they're conscious of it or not. So I want to talk about really quickly how the Proud Boys are organizing locally. They're across the country organizing. The New York Times reported this uh, this week that they have regrouped and they're focusing on school boards and town councils on running for school boards and town councils, as if the Koch brothers didn't do enough damage. This is why I will never shut up about this. This is why the Democrats have to do something. We have too much organizing. to. There's just too much organizing for us to independently do to take these folks on. And we're all doing it. It's like a game of whack-a-mole. Even if they rebrand themselves, even if they restructure themselves, even if they're put on a terrorist list like they were in Canada, there's still going to be another version of them. They'll rebrand. They won't even be an or, or you know an actual legal entity anymore. The ideas are spreading, and when the Democratic Party is still structured the same way, I am like a broken record on this, and they're not investing locally and not building a pipeline. There's no alternative of ideas locally, and when every progressive is left to fend for themselves and build their own independent campaign and raise the money to compete with these people, even if they're less expensive races. We're just not winning at the rate that we need to to combat the fascists. And I'm saying that, the fascists. Not to mention Washington's inability to confront those who stormed their offices and threatened to kill them or went to kill them. The coup that was organized internally and externally by the right wing. We can't depend on Washington anymore. 
So I am dedicating the next few months of the show to figuring out ways to combat these guys outside the box, not just depending on Washington, not just depending on traditional uh, organizing structures, but what it's really going to take. Because running as a progressive today is a lot harder than it was two years ago. Uh, you know, it is harder to raise money online. The algorithms are really, really skewed, as we've reported over and over on the show, towards these folks. I mean, why is it? I, I, I put up my show yesterday. I was watching it. And the next show was literally Steven Crowder. Like, that's how the algorithm fed our show. I know you guys have have seen this. Uh, we have to combat it. We have to talk about it. And, and um, you know, because this is this was just a taste of what's to come. All right. We have an amazing show today. We have the one and only Matt Brunig on. He'll be right on after the break. And then after that, we have our favorite panelists. I say that every week, but Rep Rab from Philadelphia, representing the Northwest Philly, and Arun Chowdhury, live from Germany, where it's really happening right now. I can't believe we're saying this out loud and we're not scared. Uh, we will be right back after the short break. We have Matt Brunig here. Matt is, of course, the founder and president of the People's Policy Project. He's also like, I would say every four months, you become a trending uh, topic on Twitter. And I'm like, what now? Come on, guys. Like, why? <laughs> so how are you feeling right now? Let's just do a temperature check. This is my new thing. Okay. Uh, state of the world, how are you feeling? <laughs> Well, you know, I, I've been following the Build Back Better bill. That's what I've been doing for the past six months. And, you know, that's obviously taken a turn for the worse in a lot of ways. So, you know, <laughs> relative to uh, where we were a few months ago, I guess I'm feeling pretty bad. Um, we're going to get into this, to what you wrote about. Uh, you have an article out that says universal benefits make sense, means testing doesn't. I can't believe we're still having this conversation that was in Jacobin. Um, but, you know, before we even get into the uh, the crux of it all, what parts of the Build Back Better bill were you surprised didn't make it in or weakened? I mean, we I think we all expected there was going to be a lot of compromise, but like what was some of the most alarming compromise? So the child tax credit, um, you know, initially they were they were always going to kind of do this gimmick where it was only going to be on on the books for a few years. But initially the proposal was to have it on the books for five or six years. Uh, and that would give it a lot of time to become somewhat permanent, perhaps, at least in the minds of Americans. It might make it a little bit harder to take it away. Now they've only got a one-year extension. And it's it's really hard to imagine how it's going to be extended beyond that one year, if it even gets passed at this point. We don't know that. Um, so they cut that way back. Paid leave. Uh, originally, the paid leave proposal that uh, Biden had put out, it was going to be a Social Security program. So just like old age pension or disability benefits. 
uh, you know, you pay in and you know you apply for benefits. The Social Security Administration sends you a check. They changed it all up to make it a primarily an employer-sponsored paid leave insurance program, very much like our healthcare system. Yep. And the federal government's just going to give money to employers so that they can buy private paid leave insurance. That's like the primary mechanism that you're going to get paid leave under the bill. Wait, um, so I, yeah. just a follow-up to that. Is this a new form of insurance? Does that exist already? Are they creating an entire industry out of this? It, it exists. It's very, very small. Um, okay. So that's probably why you know, you're not aware of it. But a few employers, you know, especially if they're big, they might be able to kind of set up a contract with uh, m- mostly life insurers, weirdly, that run these things um, and you know, pay a certain amount per employee each month. And in exchange, if one of them needs leave, the employer will cover it. So similar to other kinds of insurance. Um, but it's a very, very, very small industry. Now, it turns out that one of the big players in the industry is actually located in uh, Congressman Richard Neal's district. Um, and he is the kind of key uh, p- player on the Ways and Means Committee. And so <laughs> there seems to have been maybe a little, uh, a little lobbying there to kind of get, get it switched around to be uh, more of a private paid leave insurance system than a public insurance system. In terms of the Biden administration, I, you know, there's there's this reporting and sort of this energy and even like in my own personal experiences, like off the record with people in offices or the actual leaders when I challenge them, there's this illusion, at least, that there has been friction between the administration and even maybe Senator Schumer um, and leadership with some of the people on these committees like, you know, Representative Neal. Is that true or is that just sort of a front? Do you get, get sense? I, I don't know. I'm not at that level of uh, the discourse, I guess, or, you know, I, I don't have an insight into that. So, uh, you know, whatever you read in, in Politico or, or <laughs> Axia, you know, that's what I have available <laughs> too. So I walked up to Senator Schumer. I was at, a, at a, an event and I was like, I, you know, I started to charm him. I was like, I was your intern when I was 16. And he's like, oh, because he loves his interns. Not in <laughs> that way, but he loves, you know, um, <laughs> as far as I know, at least, not me. Uh, and so, you know, he was really hooked. And then I was like, why aren't you doing anything about it? <laughs> and he immediately was like, well, listen, I'm putting all the pressure on. We're doing it internally. I'm very frustrated with Joe Manchin and cinema. And then like he, you know, he really, because I'm just exasperated. I'm like, uh-huh, prove it. <laughs> Show me. <laughs> well, and the thing is, is that, uh, you know, on the one hand, yeah, Manchin and cinema can come in and kind of say, look, we want the whole thing scaled back. But then they're making these design decisions within the scaled back package that don't really make sense, like the one I was talking about. There's no reason why. Like, they cut the paid leave from 12 weeks to four weeks. Okay, I get it. If you're having to bring the cost of the bill down, that makes some sense. But what sense does it make to uh, bring in the private life insurers to run the program? That's going to make it more costly <laughs> than, than the alternative, you know? So it's stuff like that where there's really no defense for it or even, you know, potential defense for it in which you can kind of blame Mansion or cinema. They're not calling for that kind of stuff, you know? What is um, the most expensive part of the bill as of right now? Uh, well, it depends on how you uh, group things. Uh, usually people will group the pre-K and the child care together, and they'll mm-hmm. say that's the most expensive part of the bill. Of course, uh, they are two separate programs as they're designed. So if you cut them up, then the the SALT d- deduction, at least the one that passed the House, would be more expensive than either of those two, um, but it's less expensive than those two combined. 
Okay. Uh, we're getting to your article, I promise, but just for folks, because you hear this jargon, you know, thrown around a lot and, and can you explain what SALT is? Like what, why is this so, why has it become such a controversial issue? Especially in states like New York where, where you have a lot of rural versus, or suburban versus uh, city voters. Sure. Yeah. So it's the state and local tax deduction. Uh, what it allows you to do is you can add up your property taxes and your state income tax. Theoretically, you could also add up your state sales tax, but I don't think anyone really does that. Um, And you can reduce your income for federal income tax purposes by that amount. And and therefore, you save money because you don't have to pay as much taxes because your income shows up as less for federal purposes. And the, the, the problem with it is that in reality, if you unless you have a pretty high income, you're never going to claim the deduction because you're you're going to claim the standard deduction, um, and and so it, it it only really helps people who have income above a certain level, and it really helps people who have really high incomes uh, because they pay much higher uh, state and local tax, and because their marginal tax rate is higher because they're higher up in the income uh, tax bracket, and so um, the higher up you are, the more value that the deduction brings you on a like dollar for dollar basis so and you know we what has happened is a lot of the blue you know it really showers a lot of money on affluent districts in blue states because those states will have higher taxes and they also structure their taxes to be more income tax uh, heavy uh, and, and to a lesser extent property tax heavy whereas if you go into a state like texas for example they have no state income tax they do have a lot of rich people in texas especially around oil um, but they have no state income tax so it's you kind of don't even get to claim it that much uh, in those states uh, so it became kind of a rich blue state thing and mm. then that creates this funny like wedge issue for republicans to play around with because on the one hand blue state representatives want to help their states just bring more cash into the states. Um, And on the other hand, uh, blue (laughs) Democrats are supposed to not be wanting to give away, uh, you know, tax cuts to the rich. But in this case, those two tensions are at odds. And so it it creates an explosive, uh, I don't know, situation. Yeah, it's I'm really shocked by how much it's become a wedge issue in in New York State's perfect example, because you do have uh, representatives like Tom Swazi, who's now running for governor, who's made it his, you know, big issue because he represents, you know, parts of Long Island that are, uh, you know, mainly Long Island that are wealthier and, you know, are are, are very concerned with uh, and a little bit more conservative. There's some like Trumpian, you know, waves in there. Um, how much of this is act- like, is it a real issue or is it an aspirational issue? Meaning like people who, who think that this is going to affect them because they think they're like higher earners or want to be versus like the reality of how many people this, this hits. Uh, It's a very small percentage of people, you know, I mean, really, the benefits are concentrated in the top 5% of tax uh, filers. So most people, it doesn't matter, unless you start reasoning the way I think some of these representatives do, in which you say, well, it matters to me, because if the people in my district have more money, you know, the rich people in my district have more money, then that could eventually benefit me, maybe they'll spend more, uh, and and employ me, and, you know, I... uh, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, I'm a home contractor, and you know for sure, you know they they want nicer kitchens and nicer bathrooms, and I'll 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 be able to go and and lay the tile for them. Like I think that's where some of the representatives end up going with it, but it seems a little bit far fetched. Yeah, I'm pretty sure if you're that rich, uh, saving a few taxes is not going to, like if you paying the taxes is not going to cut back on your like nice tiles. <laughs> 
It's yeah, just... yeah. It's not that you would probably actually reduce your consumption. It's just that right. you may save less money, right? Because exactly. you kind of already max out your consumption at that point, you know, at least for that kind of stuff. Maybe right. vacations or something like that where you can get very expensive, but kind of just Rocket consumer chips. goods and durables that you put in your house, you kind of run out of that pretty pretty quickly on how much you could actually spend, you know. <laughs> Billionaires, hoarders edition. Um, okay, so let's get to the to the crux of your article. Uh, means testing. How did this become the one of the major uh, designs of? I mean, I guess like designs not the right word, but strategies of the Democratic Party. Like when when did we go down the means testing route? Oh, that's a good question. I mean. Um... You know, on some level, means testing, I guess, has always been with us. Technologically, it's only become possible more recently, right? I mean, before you have the income tax, uh, you don't really have a good ability to know what people's incomes even are. And so we don't get that till 1913. So means testing before then wouldn't really make a lot of sense. And then even then, for a long time, you know, it was only more affluent people who paid any income tax. Most people weren't even filing taxes. And so, yeah, I mean, I guess it really becomes more plausible starting in like the 50, maybe more like the 60s and 70s, you know, and that's when you get some of the war on poverty programs like SNAP and Medicaid that are more heavily income tested. So, um, so when you say yeah. most people weren't paying income taxes, you mean mainly the wealthy, we're paying income taxes up until the 60s, 70s? Yeah. I mean, Why I don't that? know the precise. Well, that's just how it was. The tax codes were written, you know, um, mm -hmm. and this is true in a lot of countries. Hmm. Um, you know, at first, you know, you don't need that much income. It's easy. It, you don't necessarily need that much revenue or don't want that much revenue. So you can raise it off of. Uh, higher earners. It's also just kind of impractical mm -hmm. for a lot of people who are working kind of informal jobs and stuff like that to necessarily tally this up. You know, people forget, you know, it's only very recently we have like all these computers and everything's tracked really well. Like it was a kind of an ordeal for a while to, to administer this kind of stuff. These days it seems easier though. It's often still quite uh, error prone, but it seems easier because well, you've got all your information. You go on your bank account. You can see everything you made. You know, it's it's a lot more plausible that you could marshal this information to use these income tests. Um, but I would say, like in general, and I mean, this is true actually across all what they call like Anglo Anglo liberal societies, like Canada, UK, the US, and Australia. They all uh, kind of went down the same path when it came to how they created their system of public benefits, and they all kind of bought into the notion that targeting the benefits through these income tests where, you know, if you make above a certain amount, you receive less benefit until you receive no benefit at all, mm -hmm. um, that that's sort of like an efficient way to spend money because you spend less money and you target that money to those who are most in need. And so there's a kind of like uh, efficiency logic to it that really seemed to appeal to those countries for whatever reason, but did mm -hmm. not end up appealing to uh, continental and northern Europe, which took different uh, paths for the most part. Um, can you define what means testing is? Yeah, so the most uh, common way to means test is with an income test. So means would just typically refer to income or wealth. So you could call it an income test or an, or an asset test. 
And what they do is they say, hey, okay, we're going to provide a certain benefit to someone, uh, let's say childcare or healthcare or whatever, but only people who have income below a certain level. And so if your income exceeds that level, you might get a diminished benefit, like a partial benefit, or you may get no benefit at all. So and Medicaid is a good example of the no benefit at all. It's kind of difficult to provide someone like sort of partial healthcare right. if they exceed it. So you get above a certain threshold and you just lose your, your health insurance. Uh, with child care subsidies, which is the subject of the piece that I wrote, you can kind of phase it out to some degree and say, hey, okay, if you make income over a certain threshold, we're just going to have you pay a certain fee. You know, mm -hmm. you, you, you'll pay 100 a month instead of $0 a month. And then that'll continue until, you know, you pay the full unsubsidized amount. Um, so that's two different approaches, but that's the basic idea. Um, reduce the amount of benefit you receive proportional to the income that you have or the wealth that you have in some cases. So the argument you're making is that this does not work, um, especially in moments like this. And, and, and part of, you know, just for folks who aren't aware, that this program, child poverty is way higher than I think most people are aware of um, in this country. I think it, I just read something in New York, one out of, I want to say six children in New York are unhoused um, in the city. I believe it was six. I, I want to fact check that. But I mean, you're saying that universal benefits in this arg in this piece are a much better path um, than means testing. I think this makes sense to a lot of folks, but but please lay out your argument. Tell us. Yeah, you know, I mean, so people, you know, we have this argument over and over and over again. And, you know, people talk about how it's simpler, which it is. People talk about how it's good politics, which it is. What I wanted to do in the piece was to point out that we don't need to, it's not just the case that on the one hand, you have the kind of moderates who are saying, hey, this is an efficient way to save money and target it. And on the other hand, you're like, yeah, but this is simple and it's better politics. It's actually from a purely distributive perspective, from a pure, does this make sense as a good way to save money? It doesn't even work in that context. And so what I try to point out is I kind of go through an illustration here. And this is a where this is part of the Build Back Better bill. I don't use the same numbers in the bill, but you know, uh, that's kind of why I wrote it. Um, David, yeah. is there any way to zoom in a little bit so you can see it a little closer? And so the you know, so one approach here is to say, hey, we're going to save money on childcare subsidies by not giving them to rich people. Right, so rich families will have to pay for their own childcare. You go, oh, that's great. Okay, so how much are we going to save? And so what I do in the piece is I say, let's define rich as two hundred thousand dollars of income or more. That puts you in the top ten percent of the mm -hmm. income distribution in the U.S. And let's see, let's say we charged all the kids below the age of three who live in those households. We made them all their parents pay the entire unsubsidized price of childcare. And I, in this case, I put it at twenty-five grand, which is an estimate that is similar to what people think might be the result of the Build Back Better legislation. Okay, you do the math on that, and it's thirty-six billion dollars a year. So, in a sense, by cutting off the rich, you save thirty-six billion dollars a year because you don't have to cover that; they cover it themselves. And so what I point out in the piece is, this is kind of an interesting like accounting exercise, like the language you, we use here. But what you're actually doing is, as part of building revenue for your childcare system, you are imposing a $36 billion bill on rich people, people with incomes over 200 grand. Okay, great. Should they contribute $36 billion to the childcare system? Absolutely. I would say much more than that. But okay, fine. But 
you're actually only imposing that bill on rich families that currently have children below the age of three. And that's only a small fraction of rich people. So that's what this table shows. Mm. If you look at all rich families, there's 12.8 million rich families, again, defined as income over 200 grand. If you only look at rich families below the age of three, it drops to 1.2 million. So the real question that we're answering when we're saying, should we means test it or provide it universal is how, how are we going to distribute this $36 billion cost across rich families? Are we going to use a tax on all rich families or are we going to use a user fee, a childcare fee, a daycare fee only on rich families below the age of three? And so that's what this shows. Here's what this, you know, the difference, uh, you know, how it, uh, what, what it actually nets out to. If you impose the $36 billion only on families with kids below the age of three, it costs those families an average of $31,000 a year, which is like 10% of their income. If you impose that $36 billion across all rich families, including those that don't currently have kids below the age of three, it costs each of them about $2,700 a year, less than 1% of their income. And you're still getting the same amount of money out of the same rich group of people. It's just that you're spreading it out across the whole group. And that comes with all sorts of advantages. And so like, even from a pure, just like dollars and cents, what's the most efficient way to do this? The universal benefit funded with the tax instead of a means tested benefit that implicitly uses user fees to fund, it still comes out on top. So, I mean, is there a way even, uh, you know, let's play devil's advocate here. You, you're in your, your New York City family. You're making $200,000 a year. You're considered rich nationally, but in New York by city standards, you know, everything from, uh, there are childcare, you know, there's there's pre-K obviously, and well, not obviously, I don't know how many people know that. Um, but, you know, the cost of living is obviously higher in New York and San Francisco and Miami. And so some families might feel like, 2700 bucks or obviously 30,000 is quite a bit for them. Uh is there a progressive aspect to this? Uh, I mean, you can always make it more progressive by taxing more uh from the rich. And that's something you can't do with the user fee, right? If you're saying, "Hey, everyone over this income, we're going to charge them just they're just going to pay daycare fees." And those daycare fees are 25 grand. Well, that's 25 grand for someone who makes 200 grand a year and it's 25 grand for someone who makes a million a year. Right, because you're using a fee, which is a flat dollar amount. When you start bringing in the tax code, then you can make it more progressive and use percentages of income or even escalating percentage of income with the progressive income tax. You can also do that. And the piece I was trying to just be very narrow and say, look, let's say you don't even do that. Let's say it's, you know, I'm trying to as apples to apples as you can possibly have it. And I'm not smuggling in other kinds of arguments or other kinds of what if I structured the fee a little bit differently. It's just perfectly equal. Which would you prefer? And like clearly the universal benefit comes out on top uh, and you raise the same amount of money. You don't save any money by, by means testing. It's just a different way of bringing the money into the system, whether fees or taxes. Have you gotten any feedback from lawmakers, people in uh, staffers, people in the space? I mean, you know, there are the 
members that know this, right? There's the the, the more left wing members who have grown up on this, whether because they read these articles, you know. I mean, you think about AOC or Bowman or Omar; they're all very, very pro universal benefits. Uh, Bernie Sanders is as well. Um, obviously, they're a small percentage of of the Congress. And the problem that you have with this, and I try to kind of drive this home in the piece a little bit, is the way that we do accounting in the way that we think about government budgets and stuff like that, that ends up just, it's just, that is like the source of the brain rot that causes yeah. people not to get this. Because if you offload it as a user fee, then that counts as uh, less spending. And right. it's not less spending, it's just you're shifting the spending to the household that then has to pay it with a user fee. Mm -hmm. It's not less spending. It also shows up as less taxes. But again, it's it's not really less taxes. It's just you're converting the tax into a fee. Those people still have to pay the same amount of money, except instead of paying it into central government, which then pays it to the child care provider, they pay it directly to the child care provider. But like those differences in the way that like what columns they go into in various spreadsheets, I mean, it, may, it makes all the difference in the world to, to certain legislators and, and really most people who write about politics it, they you know they can't get their head around like mind warp yeah these are accounting conventions they're helpful to a degree but understand what what they really mean and and what the actual practical upshot of them are um could this you know continuing on this path of like un un mind warping um lawmakers and reporters could this happen at the state or, lo or local level uh happen what in particular the, i mean could Free childcare. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is uh, there's you, obviously New York City's done a lot of stuff around this. There's earned income tax credits in California and and partially New York. Like, could this happen locally? Uh, sure. I mean, especially pre K and childcare are obvious uh, extensions of uh, K through twelve, right? And it could be done by a similar kind of body. Uh, now, the states that have done it have taken somewhat different approaches. Um, but absolutely, I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't basically take the K through 12 service and extend it down, and that's already administered locally. Mm -hmm. Now, if this bill passes and it becomes like you have to participate in this federal scheme, then it might get a little bit more complicated. And now you have to, you know, operate within the confines of the federal system, at least if you want to get federal funds. And so, you know, I mean, interestingly, like <laughs> the bill could end up crowding out. Uh, I don't know, a state that or a jurisdiction that wanted to do free childcare because it would be, yeah. if they did it, not only would it, they have to pay for all of it, but now they have to forego federal funds because the only wow. way you get the federal funds is if you participate in the system. And, you know, it's just, it's like with single payer, right? When states right. want to try to do single payer and it's like, oh my God, we get, we get so much federal money for Medicaid and Medicare and like we'd have to replace all of that, yet we're still paying taxes for it. It just, you know, you get enmeshed in that federal system so oh that's fascinating and then and then even you know this is set to expire so it's like okay you know one year two years of federal funding on this but but at the end of the day the long-term benefits of course outweigh all that yep. <laughs> <laughs> hello america uh matt really really interesting work tell me more about what you're doing um you're you know you've how long have you been over at the people's policy project we started in 2017, so four years, a little over four years. What's, uh, you know, what are you working on over there? You know, it's all build back better all the time. It has been pretty much the entire year, um, but 
the assumption is that that will, well, I mean, well the assumption that was already going to be over, but that that will mm-hmm. pass. Uh, right now, it doesn't really make sense to do anything else because it just is just completely sucking all the air out of everything. You wouldn't get any attention for anything you did. But once that passes, we're going to be in a pretty dark period, I would assume, you know, looking at the polls. And it doesn't seem like we have any chance to pass anything else. The midterms are coming and it doesn't look good for the Democrats. So we're going to shift to municipal and state level proposals and we got a number of those already in the canister ready to go we just have to pick a strategic time to publish them you know fantastic matt brunig uh, always pleasure come back soon thanks for breaking down really complicated things for most americans to understand like accounting practices and including reporters by the way so <laughs> really appreciate it all right thanks for having me all right take care the low mickey show Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed, deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Miki Show. The No Miki Show. Hey, hey, welcome back to the Nomiki Show. All right, so uh, I am so excited about this. In about a month and a half, Matriarch Organization is going to be hosting a national training for working class women who are thinking about running for office or running for office, including their staff, uh, a lot of staff, a lot of folks who have have gotten into politics over the last few years, want to understand how to run a successful campaign. This is the time. I am of the belief that working class women are, are warriors against these fascists locally, all the way to the national level. We see what's happening. We see how they're, they're highlighting and they're taking on uh, the far right is, is really taking on the squad and women in Congress to the point where it's extraordinarily dangerous for them. And yet they continue. They continue to fight for fairness and equality and economic justice, gender justice, racial justice. They're out there putting their lives literally on the lines. As I mean, I, I'm not saying that figuratively. They have death threats coming in all the time. And there was a coup, of course. So, or attempted coup. So with that being said, Matriarch is stepping it up a notch. Uh, in 2020, Matriarch supported federal candidates. It was a great first run, first year. Uh, one of Matriarch's founding members was Cori Bush, and she, of course, got elected and shocked the world and really went right into Congress, uh, not holding back with so much courage, earning the respect of not just progressives, but so many other con- Congress members um, across the board. On January 29th, Matriarch is hosting this training. And what's unique about this training is that it's really leaning in on the systemic barriers that working women face when they run. It takes a woman an average of three times to run before they win. Now that statistic is from when most of the women that were running 
or winning had institutional support, financial support. Many of them were of the means that it was a little bit easier to create a viable campaign. Viability meant having the money to be able to, to run a campaign uh, and, and be competitive. But when you've had a record number of women run over the last five years, whether it was 2016 or 2018 or 2020, we've seen a record number of women run and a record number win, but we've also seen a record number lose. That's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. Because you learn every single time you run, you learn and you're organizing on the ground. And more importantly, you're getting that message out there, that progressive message. Democrats, of course, really pulled out of local races and, and there's a vacuum. And the vacuum is, is now being taken over by folks like the Proud Boys who are organizing at the state and local level all the way down to school boards. Well, guess what? We can do that too. I don't think the Proud Boys know more about education than a woman does or a mom does or a teacher does or a nurse does or somebody who's been involved in the community. You know, we said we were supporting our frontline workers in 2020. We said during the pandemic, you know, we are there with them. Well, let's really be there with them. If you are a frontline worker, if you are a working woman, a nurse, a teacher, an Amazon worker, a Starbucks worker, if you are interested in running, if you've been involved locally, if you know someone who's extraordinary, urge them to come to this training. This training is on January 29th. It is free. It is a free training and everything from the playbook of how to run a successful campaign, how to build coalitions, how to run while you're working, how to run while you're not working, how to run while you have childcare issues. You know, can you pay for childcare through your, through your campaign funds? Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. We are going to go through all of that. What is... How, what do you do when you're attacked by the right? What do you do when you're attacked by the Democrats? What do you do when, when somebody uh, lies about you? We are going to talk about all of these issues during the training and so much more. But really important, before the end of the year, we are trying to raise $30,000 to make sure that this training hits as many women as possible. If you can support in any way, uh, to help this goal. We're about halfway there. We have two weeks left before the end of the year, two weeks to hit $30,000. This is what makes this training free. Uh, there are platform fees. There's you know fees to conduct the training. The money goes straight to the training. So when you're contributing, you are making a huge difference. We want to make sure that this training is free. We want to make sure that it runs smoothly. And we want to make sure that we can do many of them next year because this is just the first one. But, you know, I have no doubt that there are going to be things that pop up and we're going to do another training. And we're using a lot of, of the lessons that we learned in the last few cycles in this training because campaigns have shifted, the strategies have shifted, and we wanna make sure that as many women as possible are equipped. We're doing what the Koch brothers have been doing, but we're doing it in a different way. So if you want, if you're, you know, stop relying on the Democrats, okay. Stop relying on these PACs to, to endorse candidates. Endorsements are great, but we wanna train. We want to teach candidates how to run effective campaigns and be competitive. And it might take a few shots. It did with Cory Bush. Remember that. So forget about win records. This is this is a, a Democratic talking point. They go to donors and they say, you know, the donors say, well, what's your win record? Well, guess what? The Democrats' win record has not been great. So let's try a different way. My belief is the frontline women are the front lines against fascists right now. So let's take them on.
support matriarch pack uh, and C4. We've got the link up there. Go to bit.ly slash train women, all lowercase train women, W-O-M-E-N, train women. All right, guys, we'll be right back with our incredible panel and a few shout outs. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion in this melted body. Living time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. Continues. The No Miki Show. The No Miki Show. Hey, 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 we're back. Uh, little breaking news. Rep Rab is in session. Uh, the Republicans are holding him hostage in there because it's the end of the year. But that's okay because we get one-on-one time with the one, the only, Arun Chowdhury. You know Arun, of course, from uh, the committee program. But, of course, he is a reoccurring panelist on our show. He's a political filmmaker. He's the host of the committee and runs the committee uh, and is advising all of the, the the left that are taking on the extreme right across Europe. You're saving you're saving us. Hopefully. Darn trying, you're darn trying. trying. Because I do I do think, and we, we've talked about this before. We'll talk about it again. But it's a situation that what happens here ends up in the U.S. much more than what happens in the U.S. ends up here in terms of politics. And I will say the the scariest part about that. I shouldn't hold this random pointy thing while I'm making points. That's a bad communications tactic. Uh, thing I'll say about that that's scary is while you see like things like in the wellness community sort of nibbling yeah. around the edges of yeah. uh, far right extremism here in Europe that's much farther along and places like rural Austria you will see the birthing of you know youthful eco fascist movements. No, it's it's. I'm so glad you're saying this because I feel like the show. I've already said this at the top of the show. This is like we're leaning in on this now. I don't think people understand. It's not just that the far right is growing. They may not have won all the seats in the U. Bannon's project never went away. It's he planted the seeds. And as I said that you know just a few minutes ago, I said it, while it takes a woman three times to run and before they they win. These guys, it takes usually one time, sometimes twice. They're planting the seeds. They don't give up. They invest in the pipeline. They're educating people in, in colleges, and they're trying to reach people wherever they are and bring them in. And Steve Bannon said this in the brink, openly on air, to a reporter from The Guardian saying, oh, you've got 20% of the audience that I want. You've got 20, meaning the left, and he's going to figure out whatever way to get those folks in bed with him. And, and never even just a couple is good, you know, because you're taking, you're, you're funneling directly from the opponent into your own pipeline. And it's very rare in politics to be able to do that. And so this kind of ban in pipeline, I guess we can call it, is one of the more remarkable pieces of politics in the 21st century. And horrifying. And all he does, I mean, this is, I urge people to watch The Brink. It's, I think it's on maybe Hulu or something. Um, it's a documentary came out maybe three years ago and it was about, or two years ago, about the, um, his EU, like the, the planting the seeds for his, his, his right wing, uh, uh, you know, training camp, I guess. And, and, and at some point the master and the teacher is reversed, right? Because Tucker Carlson doesn't go visit uh, Victor Orban to lend Orban credibility. He's the goddamn head of state uh, of a major EU country. Uh, it is quite the opposite. Yep. So you see actually where power is flowing from. And in, and in the brink with Bannon, he's sitting there at a table 
with world leaders talking about building coalitions between Orban, building coalitions with Duterte, uh, Duterte and, and, and obviously people have lost power, but the ideas have not gone away. These are no, vehicles. No, no. These candidates are vehicles for movements that spread up and down. They can be official organizations or unofficial. The ideas are there. The actions are there. Uh, you know, you were in the White House in, in – um, in the Obama White House, of course, you were the the, the, the first, term, first yeah. videographer. I said this on air last night. Um, I remember when Barack Obama did not take ISIS seriously. And I know the left loves when we bring up ISIS. But, like, hear me out. Every radical organization has always targeted young men, right? But the mm -hmm. difference between ISIS back then was it was – it wasn't a centralized organization like some of the other groups like that were a little bit more top down or they were they were networked in a different type of way and this is all as the rise of the internet was happening it didn't matter if they were official if they had a legal entity how they were like it, it, the money was coming from somewhere but it's so convoluted now it's so easy to hide money and move money in different places whether it's moving it through crypto or moving it through 25 different entities or holding it in real estate we don't know where it's coming from but what was so interesting about Bannon was he was sitting there saying, I don't care who pops up and where they pop up from. I want to build it. Meanwhile, yeah. the former CEO of Goldman Sachs is sitting at that table talking about these ideas in a very legitimate way. And you're like, what? This is out of the open. And we're sitting here like in America, like, oh, well, you know, Bannon's out. So he doesn't matter anymore. And um. You know, it's no big deal. This is this is he lost his experiment. This is not. It's, the Proud Boys are literally organizing locally right now to run for election, whether they're an organization or not. They're people. This stuff is always going to be attractive to powerful interests. Uh, it's always going to have the table tilted. Uh, it's always going to have that little extra zing. And so it is just so beholden upon Democrats, other sudden left parties globally, not to let the bandits of the world run at them from the left, right? This is one of the reasons, you know, people forget in the Cold War, one of the reasons we ran more of a welfare state in the Cold War was that there was a world power of socialism that folks were, you know, vaguely worried about physically conquering the world. Uh, and when that went away, we felt like we didn't have to worry about that kind of thing anymore. But what we see, uh, more and more is that letting folks run at the left is what is creating this power, you know, and we openly let that happen with the platforms we choose. And when I say we, I'm being general, but mm -hmm. on the center left, these are mm -hmm. results. We are having bad outcomes from choices that are being made. Mm -hmm. So um, speaking of, you know, bad outcomes from choices we've made, uh, you know, you think that folks storming Congress and trying to kill our politicians would maybe scare the politicians into actually doing something, but of course not. We're <laughs> they're much scarier things like losing donors or whatever the hell, you know, keeps them up at night. Uh, I want to play this clip of, of Liz Cheney, who has somehow become our leftist hero of the day. <laughs> like, I wish the left had as much courage as Liz Cheney has taking on her own party. <laughs> I'm like, I mean, it's just amazing how freeing being kicked out of whatever power structure you're in yes. is. Yes. So we you know we don't agree with Liz Cheney, but we like anyone in that position. Their attitude and the kind of what energy and truth that they bring is always going to be a satisfying meal. Absolutely. So she, of course, um, was reading text messages that were uncovered when uh, Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff to Donald Trump, uh, was 
going to testify, but now he is not. But he at least did provide a a lot of of information, documentation, bunch of stuff. Bunch of stuff. And we're just starting. We're just starting. So let's play this clip of Liz Cheney. Texts, including from Trump administration officials, urged immediate action by the president. Quote. POTUS has to come out firmly and tell the protesters to dissipate. Someone is going to get killed. In another, Mark, he needs to stop this now. A third, in all caps, tell them to go home. A fourth, and I quote, POTUS needs to calm this shit down. Indeed, according to the records, Multiple Fox News hosts knew the president needed to act immediately. They texted Mr. Meadows, and he has turned over those texts. Quote, Mark, the president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting all of us. He is destroying his legacy, Laura Ingram wrote. Please get him on TV destroying everything you have accomplished, Brian Kilmeade texted. Quote, can he make a statement, ask people to leave the Capitol, Sean Hannity urged. As the violence continued, one of the president's sons texted Mr. Meadows, quote, he's got to condemn this shit ASAP. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough, Donald Trump Jr. texted. Meadows responded, quote, I'm pushing it hard. I agree. Still, President Trump did not immediately act. Donald Trump Jr. texted again and again, urging action by the president, quote, we need an Oval Office address. He has to lead now. It has gone too far and gotten out of hand. Got a little out of hand. A little out of hand, a little bit out of hand. I think we're going to play another clip from her um, as well. Mr. Meadows received numerous text messages that he has produced without any privilege claim urging President Trump to take action. I read a number of those last night to the nation. Here are a few others from Republican members. Quote, it is really bad up here on the Hill. Another one, the president needs to stop this ASAP. Another one, fix this now. And as we saw last night, dozens of texts, including from Trump administration officials, from members of the press, from Donald Trump Jr., urged immediate action by the president. But we know hours passed with no action by the president to defend the Congress of the United States from an assault while we were trying to count electoral votes. So, Iran, um, you've worked in the White House before. Yes. Uh, let's just imagine the same exact thing. You know, a right-wing plot from the outside uh, were to happen, you know, and, and folks storm the Capitol. There's like a chain of command. I mean, if, say, say uh, Sasha <laughs> Obama were to text Chief of Staff to the White House, uh, Rob Emanuel, or whoever was Chief of Staff at the time. Yeah. How does this work? I mean, can Sasha just not text her father? 
Like who, how does this okay. work? Right. So, I mean, look, I cannot tell you how the Trump family works and maybe it's, you know, worse than I think it is, but I believe that uh, Donald uh, Jr. has access to his father via text message, via all, you know, Twitter DMs, like whatever, however it is they, <laughs> however it is they talk, they're talking. The yeah. fact that he is going uh, to, um, to to Mark Meadows and the fact that everyone's using his name Mark so constantly, this is Golda, by the way. And Golda's tushy. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, the fact that everyone's going out of their way, I think shows you that they've already tried to directly reach out to the president who's not inaccessible, right? He's not a guy in a golden palace. He's always willing to talk to a reporter, always willing to pick up the phone and call and yell and be crazy with whoever, right? Accessibility is yep. not his thing. So clearly he had made his mind up uh, and there's nothing a chief of staff can really do, but the chief of staff absolutely has as much access as you could possibly want to the president, especially this president who's a homebody, who's hanging out in his office, you know, or possibly in the residence, like the chief of staff's physical office right. is attached. So they don't have to go through any corridors. The chief of staff is supposed to be everywhere at all times. The chief of staff literally has access to things saying like the medical condition of the president at all times. So this is a question of the president made a decision that you see mm -hmm. a lot of people making, which is, uh, am I a Republican or am I a Trump person? Uh, who am I dancing with? Who brought me? Mm -hmm. And I think you see, and I'm having this idea as we're talking and gold is helping me with it. But it feels like Mark Meadows is playing this perfectly by releasing text messages, which lets him sort of be part of the process, but then not speaking, which lets him sort of be a tough guy, sort of in the middle. And if you're a Trump person, which a majority of America, basically, you know, uh, the bet folks are making is, these aren't text messages that you're, you're like, these people are asking for something dumb. It sort of makes establishment Republican media figures and establishment figures look sort of right. And you can see, as you see people making this decision over and over again, like, do I go with Trump or do I go with mainstream Republicans? Mainstream Republicans lose that argument just about every time. And this is just another case of that. I think what this also reveals is, you know, there's, there's always been this question about whether or not Trump is is acting independent because he's made some sort of deal with the devil or or he's just a maniac or both um but like you know when when the impeachment was happening this was a major question how much was trump you know an independent person who may have made decisions on his own or how much was his family looped into those decisions and i think it's really interesting that you know even family members are not on the same page with their father um which is you know, weird. Like it's gone too far. I mean, that to me seems like they were at least conscious of the fact that they had, I mean, of course they were conscious. There was an organized rally outside, but did they know that they were going to be storming the Capitol? It's sort of a game of chicken, right? And they yeah. all bailed out at a sensible time and pulled off into the shoulder. Uh, but tr that's not how Trump plays the game, right? Mm -hmm. He's like, you know, <laughs> you don't know, never lost by going full bore ahead. Uh, right. And so, yeah, I think you do, you are separating kind of what makes Donald Trump special uh, is, you know, what Danton yep. would say, daring, right? You know, like just the one who dares wins. So so I want to, um, our, our dear friend Ben Dixon from the Benjamin Dixon Show has created this this compilation, uh, David, who's who works with Ben as well. Uh, let's, let's play this clip of, 
of the hypocrisy of the Fox News hosts who, of course, were like, it's too far, it's too far. And then like half a beat later, you know, hey, ratings. <laughs> Get a text from Brian Kilmeade. It sounds pretty much identical to Brian Kilmeade on Fox and Friends. These are not phonies. We can personally confirm that. Whether you like them or not, they're real. Please get him on TV, destroying everything you have accomplished, Brian Kilmeade texted. I do not know Trump supporters that have ever demonstrated violence that I know of in a big situation. Quote, Mark, the president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting all of us. He is destroying his legacy. Laura Ingram. An overwhelming majority of them, 99. more than 99%, had to be, uh, were peaceful. Quote, can he make a statement, ask people to leave the Capitol, Sean Hannity urged. And we had the reports that groups like Antifa, uh, other radical groups, I don't know the names of all of them, that they were there to cause trouble. In a weak attempt to smear yours truly, and presumably, I guess, President Trump, Congresswoman Cheney presented one of my text messages from January 6th to Mark Meadows. Uh, surprise, surprise, surprise. I said to Mark Meadows the exact same thing I was saying live on the radio at that time and on TV that night on January 6th and well beyond January 6th. And by the way, where is the outrage in the media over my private text messages being released again publicly. Do we believe in privacy in this country? Apparently not. Uh, I am an honest, straightforward person. I say the same thing in private <laughs> that I say to all of you. Liz Cheney I'm an honest, straightforward person. She doesn't seem favorite. to care. She's interested in one thing and one thing only, smearing Trump and purging him from the party. Does that sound like I was downplaying it to you? Oh my God. Now here, but it was not an insurrection to say Anything different is beyond dishonest, and it ignores the facts of that day. This is going to work. I mean, yeah, it'll work for them. <laughs> this is, okay, I think I think we have a good sense of what's going on here. Um, Arun, I mean, when you say it's going to work, is it going to work on all of the Fox audience? Is it going to work? Because I think people, just, just pulling back a little bit on the Fox, Fox audience, people... I think in centrist world and and center to center left to left think that the Fox audience is like all of the Trumpsters. But the reality is, is, you know, it's just the folks who watch the news also. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. the folks who watch the news. It's in the airports. It's at the gym. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's and many of them don't like Trump. And yet Fox is leaning in so hard on Trump and potentially, you know, losing their center right folks that are. I mean, I think they might be going too far because I don't so think so. Right. I don't know. I, you're, you're not making a, an incorrect point, right? And maybe if it was more like that could be true, but I don't, I, the, too much time has passed. I feel like the history book with, you know, Viking helmet guy photo, like has already kind of been written. And this sort of reminds me of impeachment one and impeachment two of like digging in on hypocrisy and things that you know seem clear, and, and, you know, and you're like, why doesn't anyone care about this? And it's because each time, the yeah. opinion has already been cemented first, right? Like that redacted weird Mueller report that was like, everything's fine, right? And it turned out actually some of it wasn't that great. But like, uh, you know, that was what stuck. You know, next time, not guilty. That's what stuck. I think this time, like, you know, uh, the idea that there's something impolite happened, that something maybe even dangerous happened because of 
improper security protocols in place is something that the Fox audience can understand and accept we can move in on be like Trump acted badly by not intervening also. But I think that what all of this will add up to them ultimately not punishing Republicans, the Republican media or Donald Trump for January 6th as being any kind of motivating factor and any kind of voting outcome. I mean, it's, I, I hear you on that. And, and of course, the, the, the most notable way of holding people accountable is holding the people accountable who are just like the individuals who they don't care about. So whether it's the Viking dude or other folks who were in the insurrection um, who are now going to be in, in prison, uh, you know, yeah, the FBI's investigation. Sure, they should be held accountable. They, they were bad actors, like really bad, dangerous actors. Simultaneously, you know, those who were involved the, the, the lawmakers rarely, rarely, rarely ever are held accountable. Um, in terms of politically, I mean, I, I could be wrong, but like my perspective on this is so, so say, let's just be very generous, say of the Fox audience, 50%, maybe 40%, that's really generous, I think, um, are loyal Trump people. I don't think that's true. I think maybe 20 and they're very vocal. Um, and then there's, you know, 20, that's right. Yeah, like there's, and that's by the way, a very scary number. Twenty percent of the of the Fox audience is loyal uh, Trumpsters. I have family members who are Republican in Arizona who watch Fox News all day long. Love Bill O'Reilly, even though he's not on anymore. You know, who, and I say that because Bill O'Reilly just did an event in Orlando with Trump. They 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 have all of Bill O'Reilly's books. Uh, they despise Trump, and they will never vote for Trump, and they haven't voted for Trump. They have guns. They want lower taxes. They're Republicans. I won't even say they're center-right Republicans. They're Republicans. They're conservative Republicans. But Trump is just too too much, too over the top. Um, so I do think they're that is. I mean, and and, and they voted for Joe Biden. Like, I, I don't know how that happened. My brain kind of you know. Exploded. Yes, but more Republicans voted for Hillary Clinton than voted for Joe Biden. Correct, one hundred percent correct. And I don't think well. Not more Republicans total percentage wise because don't percentage you wise, yeah, 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 yeah. But she in. peeled more layers off the onion, you know. Exactly, which you know, again, people's brains explode when they when they hear that. But that part of that is because the the Trump experiment kept growing and growing, and it might have grown even more so, and we're not really sure yet. Where and where it's, it's polarization, going. right? So yeah. when it comes to you hate this guy, but are you on the team? Right. The right wing has the team. I mean, uh, you know, I'll just give you the global equivalent that we find so frustrating working in Italy. Uh, bellwether of the world, as we say, right? You have two teams, even though they have lots of parties, they add up to, to roughly two teams that are very close in strength. But when you add uh, up the the two uh, largest uh, right parties, La Lega and Fratelli d'Italia, who are both really solid, conservative, horrible parties, uh, for, I'm forget like Forza, you know, like Berlusconi's kind of center-right thing. Like it adds up to the number. Like it adds up to every single person knows they're both on the same team and that's number. And whenever you put the five stars and PD together, there's too much of the, I won't vote for the other one. I don't care about the, hmm. so their alliance is weaker than the sum of its parts. And we see that all over the place, right? Where the alliance on the right is equal or greater to the sum of its parts. Cause everybody does bring a friend. They do go to the church group. They do get three more people. Uh, they do the work, you know, or, uh, oh, I forgot what, how was I going to finish that sentence? I think you know what I'm saying though. Or Yeah. I mean, we get you. We get you. Okay, speaking of, you are in Germany, and I woke up this morning and I saw the news that um, the far right is organizing Germany 
<laughs> a great thing to leave yeah. your day off with. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Now that they haven't been there for a while, it's just, it's just a little bit like more open. It used to be like a little, you know, behind the closet, you know, not, not, not as aggressively open. Um, far rights organizing Germany to around the vaccine mandate and going after politicians. Can you just kind of give me a sense of this is uh, scroll up a little bit. German, German raids on COVID extremists over Saxony leader death plot. So the yeah. part that really sticks out to me is COVID extremists. This is now a political, like they're, they're threatening leaders with death. Like what level I mean, of insanity? Also, the banal just from the, the you know from the Department of the Banality of Evil. The reason we get COVID extremists in the headline is because reporters have had to write this headline so many different times and doesn't know how else to describe these people, right? Because you had one of these in Rotterdam where the cops actually had to shoot seven or nine people, which in Ooh. Europe is not something that cops normally do. Uh, you had in Rome <laughs> huge uh, huge ones in, in the Czech Republic. So there are there is increasingly um, a wave of right-wing extremism mixed with vaccine skepticism just fomenting. And I think folks in America are always surprised to hear how strong conspiracy and QAnon stuff, et cetera, is in Europe, specifically in Germany. Germans mm -hmm. love a good QAnon uh, kind of conspiracy style thing. And when you have... Uh, I, you know, I, you know, the Americans do too. There's something that in we're looking for this sort of superstructure. I don't know exactly what it is, um, but you do that fueled with the fact that things happen when they are Nazis involved happen big here because they're good at Nazi stuff. There's lots of actual Nazis, uh, you know, especially in portions of the East and stuff. And so these demonstrations that maybe don't get as much play in uh, although they're just as far right just as scary in rome are happening here in germany and they actually have like real nazis with real nazi stuff there and it's terrifying i mean i will tell you just you know anecdote that does not need to be an example of anything but the way it all gets so convoluted i mean more than this happens every day but i you know but my kids uh, you know we're all jewish we're called jewish nazis because they were wearing masks right so this is like Okay, so this is very important. I so like you're this. a Jewish Nazi. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so I've been tweeting about this, and it's interesting because the I mean, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm 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 like I'm not backing down on this anymore. I've been a little bit afraid of getting into the whole like fights online with the left because they just come for you and it gets really aggressive. But it's too far. It's like people are dying, you know, because because we have a pandemic that will never go away because it's become a political identity. But Again, back to Bannon, which you're very familiar with, and and I I feel like I'm, you know, at least a at a 301 level class um, on Bannon. But you're you're definitely you've got like a master's in Bannon mindset and understanding what his strategies are. I say this because they have co-opted so many different terms to do this mental jujitsu on people. Where you know we used to, I, when I would go on Fox News like eight years ago, they did a little bit of this. Um, but it's really gone above, you know, they would say like, oh, you're a socialist. You know, that's how the, Na the yeah, Nazis yeah, were yeah, socialists. Yeah, yeah. And But now it's like uh, you have uh, uh, right-wingers saying that, you know, we're the fascists. Uh, Rudy Giuliani going out there and saying Joe Biden is a fascist because of the mandates. I mean, he doesn't say that directly, but that's what he's alluding to. Um, 
And this you is know, an age thing, right? I think right. this sounds a bit silly to us. And we're like, oh, that's crazy. And Jewish Nazis, ha ha. But it's for that audience of angry young men, right? Who mm -hmm. like are looking for something, hate things, no authority that's is bad. It. It's like, yeah, Joe Biden is a fascist. You know, they haven't even gotten to the part where Jews run the world yet, but like they'll get there. You know, it's like, but the entry yeah. is just like, I don't like my general authority. And somebody's got a quick and easy answer of why that is. Right. With words right. that I understand. Exactly. Q sent him. Look at this. Um, Okay, so so the rise of the right is is very alarming uh, in in Germany and of course everywhere else. And, and like we said before, tied to the wellness and the, so that's where this right. becomes you know kind of the anti-vaxxing. Uh, but but sorry, go ahead. No, no, but this is important because it's they're they're trying to meet people where they are, and so if they find a really key aspect to this is of course you know what you just said tapping into somebody's distrust of institutions, you know, institutions, the, the stats are out there. This isn't like, you know, you don't have to do any sort of mental gymnastics to get there. Institutions, trust in institutions is an all-time low. Every year just gets a little bit lower, a little bit lower. And when you pair that up with uh, income inequality being where it's at and, and, uh, and of course, you know, the internet, which helps facilitate things much, much faster and the internet being owned by monopolies that are at least center right and sometimes even further right. Um, you know, so there's not very much oversight into how fast an idea or a, a conspiracy mm -hmm. can spread. Um, these networks can grow at a much faster rate than say like the thirties, the late thirties, um, which was real organizing, you know, and it's, it's, and there was propaganda then too. Um, which you understand. So, so the wellness yeah, community is weird because it's not young men, which is no, 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 the, no. There's a lot of young women. I have seen personally, and I'm part of that wellness space. Um, I've seen personally friends of mine who are not young women. They're in their mid forties. Yeah. Uh, they do yoga sometimes twice a day. They, you know, basically live on raw diets. Um, they're probably better off economically than most people. I know one in particular is sort of famous as being a writer um, and is just turned into a total, you know, doesn't believe in the vaccines, but it's, it's melded. It's, it's gone into this other space where she's not a Trumpster, it doesn't seem, but she doesn't believe in the wokeness of the internet now. And I'm like, oh no, we've lost her. She's gone. She has totally gone from being a Hillary Clinton supporter to this. So this concerns me. It's like, it's not our normal pathway, but there's something in her that's insecure about society and distrusting. And, and then we end up there. I mean, false sort of medicine and fears on things like, you know, just anxiety about health has been at the center of so many bad political movements, cults, you know, just over and over again, that kind of bodily anxiety and search for an answer is just something that when paired with low information on the internet is just is the concoction that is killing us. Right. So on this note, um, <clears throat> I, I want to actually ask you, because, you know, you have a lot of experience uh, in politics. Dr. Oz, who hosts a show yes. for 13 years, uh, has millions and millions of viewers a week. Uh, he has been challenged for some of his, his medical takes. He still conducts surgeries. Um, I believe open heart surgeries, if I'm correct, uh, once a week. So he is a very good surgeon. He yes. started going on Oprah after she met him and, of course, developed a following on Oprah 20 years ago. And yes. then she gave him a show. 
part of I, I listened to a whole podcast on him, like a long, long podcast on like the questionable background of Dr. Oz. He's a legitimate doctor. He, no, he's a real doctor, right? Not a doctor. He's not Dr. Phil, right? Who's he's like not Dr. I think exactly. who's like a doctor of English literature or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. He's like a doctor, doctor. He's a doctor, doctor. And uh and and why this is is concerning is because when you put a doctor into the space of television news, you know, one person said you know, if you're in the medical space, medical journals maybe publish one really transformative thing a year, and it's like not anything that you would be shocked by. It's like, drink more water, you'll be healthy. So it yeah, doesn't yeah. play well on TV. So he, uh, his 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 wife's um, family is really into the holistic movement, and her, her father is a, is a doctor as well. So he started leaning into this holistic space, which, you know, challenging Western medicine is not a bad thing. I mean, I think a lot of us understand that the health, there are a lot of studies on the health benefits of yoga, on eating a balanced diet, on cutting meat. All of that stuff is indisputable at this point. But then he gets into weird things like because of the TV way of looking, you know, of, of, of amplifying these stories is like, this green tea thing or green coffee is going to change your life and you're going to lose. Yeah, you don't yeah. have to do anything else. It's like, well, there's no studies Two on steps that. on Gwyneth Paltrow, right? It's the, yep. it's, it's the same shit. Yep. So I'm, I'm, um, you know, that's sort of the premise. He had to testify before Congress about some of these, you know, these pushes and how uh, folks on the internet will take advantage of him and even put his name on something uh, to sell products. But it's, it's, it's a weird dance. Flash forward, he is now running for... U.S. Senate, Madonna, in Pennsylvania. Even though he's from Southern Jersey, but that's I guess like you know part of Pennsylvania. Ah, it's close enough. Yeah, that's close enough cool. for folks who live down there. You, you understand. Um, at a time when the war is against Dr. Fauci, and he gives a speech, his first speech, his announcement speech is about how you really need to take personal ownership of your life, and uh, and the government is basically you know taking too much control. And this is coming from a doctor. What does this mean? It's horrible. It's horrible because he's a real doctor and because he's smart about how he has kind of gone into grifterism uh, and now political grifterism, first just commercial, in that he doesn't do it all at once. It's like a bit, a bit, a bit, and you don't see the fish tank getting dirtier, right? Like he's gone from being a normal doctor who cares about women's health care enough to be supportive of reproductive freedoms to someone who is now okay with Roe v. Wade getting uh, overturned, but not at all at once, right? He did it with like four kind mm -hmm. of different gradual moves to get there. So I think he is a smart man with not a great moral center who is following where the money and energy is. And I think he's got a shot at this race. And then what does that mean? I mean, not just the fact that like, say he wins or doesn't, win, it doesn't matter. The fact that he has so much money and he's going to be bringing in so much money, it sort of doesn't legitimize. Uh, it's, gonna, it's going to be him on steroids, right? Behind so many things that are bad, whether it's the, you know, how smoking kept going on forever without anyone yeah. sort of really talking about it. There's always one doctor behind it, right? Whether it's the autism scare about vaccines, there's always one crooked doctor behind it. That's and right. when that one crooked doctor is in the Senate, like that's a problem. Because we have had like, people who are crooked but are not crooked doctors in yeah. the Senate. And it's actually been a little better than if they hadn't been doctors. I'm thinking, what's his name? From Tennessee, Frist, 
right? Terrible guy, terrible politician. And when it came to talking about medical issues like in Africa or something, actually was a doctor and knew what he was talking about and was like, ah, maybe. Yeah. Uh, like you're seeing here somebody who is doing the opposite where the entire uh, persona is wrapped up in being this rotten doctor. Mm -hmm. Well, what's, what's really concerning to me is, first off, he's extremely charming. And like I've met him in person. He's really He's got really his eyebrows, yeah. Genuine. He's really genuinely nice. He has that je ne sais quoi that you look for. In a star quality. This is what Oprah looks for in people, right? She's percent. like, you have a star quality, yeah. One million percent. He, I mean, when I talk to him, he's from Turkey and I'm from Greece and the area that my dad's from is right near Turkey. You can see Turkey from like the coastline um, from where we are and he's from that area. So he's like, oh, we're like neighbors. I could wave to you. And we had a long conversation about food. And, different. and I was like, oh my God, he got me. I mean, this is a few years ago. I'm like, he got me. He got me. How did he do it? He got bedside me. Bedside manner. He's got the bedside manner. <laughs> I know. I know what his jam is and I still got caught. <laughs> I got caught in his little web of, oh, he's so charming. Um, anyways, but, but, but I think that's important because you know, he, 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 the audience. He's doing that in retail know? politics and ice cream stores up and down, you know, I right. 80 something, you know, that's right. Is. That's 81. Right. And then on top of it, and of course, you know, female voters are very important. Uh, they turn out more on top of it. There's this, it's, it's sort of like the perfect storm of events in that he, you know, we're all saying like, oh, well, maybe you know, whoever's going to who the next Trump is, is going to be uh, DeSantis or it's going to be uh, Josh Hawley. I could very well in four years see Senator totally. Dr. Oz running for president, wooing the entire country. The other aspect is he actually does believe in vaccines. He's been urging people to take vaccines, but simultaneously he is putting He's he's like a wedge issue for for the Fauci people. He's challenging Fauci so he can pull all those folks in. No, he's he know he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He's Beware. right there on. You the heard edge. it here first, guys. You heard you heard it here first. Should he win this race, he he has no limit to his political potential. Exactly, exactly. He's dangerous. All right, Iran, you're the best. Uh, anything else we want to discuss in the last two minutes? Got any, uh, no, man. We went back and forth across the Atlantic a bunch of times. That feels good. Feels fun. like we did a good job today. Yeah. Relief. Yeah. <laughs> Always a pleasure. Take care. Ciao. Ciao. All right. We're going to do some shout outs. I got some shout outs here. Some people who have been uh, chiming in on the platforms that we have. We've got a lot of platforms. platforms that we have. We've got a lot of platforms. Let's start with the, uh, the Twitch. Nog Wrangler. What's up, Nog Wrangler? You've been subscribed for a long time. We just want to say hi. We'll say hi. I talk, or talk I teacher, excuse me. Uh, also subscribe now for 10 months. Thank you so much. Uh, pagan communist, love that. Pagan communist, sound great. Sound like I want to invite you to dinner. Uh, you've been subscribed for 10 months as well. Thank you so much. And a rogue jaguar gifted two community subscriptions on Twitch. Thank you, a rogue jaguar. That is awesome. Uh, all right. And then we've got Matt B. Thank you so much. Uh, Matt says, Nomi, your next investigative reporting should be on the Hawaii water story. There's also the story about what the Hawaii people are experiencing with the corporate takeover of their culture and lands. Absolutely. It's actually on our list. I think we're going to cover it on, on Friday. Thank you so much for nudging me. I'm watching that story. Thank you so much for that. Uh, we will absolutely cover it a little bit more. We've had some folks on talking about uh, the colonization of Hawaii and and the effects in the long term. And of course, we talk about that in Puerto Rico all the time, which is always looking at Hawaii saying, see, this is this is what they're trying to do. All right. Continuing on. Uh, these are super chats, by the way. Ken M sending five pounds. 
five pounds. Thanks, Ken M. Uh, Industrial Arts, five dollars. Thank you. And Tam, I am ten dollars. Thank you, Ian Kinzel. Love you, Ian. Uh, so happy to see your show live again. For the next wish, I want centrist Dems to be a partisan against the GOP, even Liz Cheney, as they are against the left. Yeah, that would be great. All I want for Christmas is that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, what else do we have here? And we have new patrons. Patron uh, DHLJ and Winchester and Jen and Louis P and John O. Thank you so much for pledging for the year. So, so, so grateful. This stuff makes our show work. Uh, sometimes I'm on the road, as you know. We have a lot of, of great people on our team, and um, this is how you know a show operates. Since we don't lean into picking fights with our allies, uh, we have to really rely on our patrons because when you pick fights with allies, people click, and then the ads come in and get all the money from Google and the, all the different spaces on Twitch. We don't do that. So we really do rely on your individual contributions and your support. So thank you so much. If you don't know already, you can join us on Patreon. You can get us an audio form. We break it into pieces. You get stuff early. You get extra stuff. Go to patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. We will see you for Fun Friday. Stay in solidarity. The Nomi Key Show. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion, and this melted body living. Time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left his best. The saga continues. The No Mickey Show.